save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're going to be talking about environmental security and resilience and uh When we're living our daily life and it becomes uncomfortable in the developed world and the distance between comfort and discomfort becomes shorter and instantaneous, we're finally forced to take notice of day zero. I welcome back today my guest, uh, Ashwell Glasson, as we discuss day zero in South Africa as the water crisis has finally hit the taps. Welcome, Ashwell. Thank you so much. It's great to be back again, Ellie, and uh, a big shout out to all the listeners and everything. Yeah, uh, it's lovely to be back. Well, thank you. I mean, we always have such incredible discussions and so much to talk about and your knowledge and your ability to connect the dots in this bigger picture picture thinking while also living in the midst of it. You're in South Africa. The water crisis is happening. So we wanted to talk about that a little and then segue into what we can do about it so um let's let's dig right in we we're talking a little bit and you know overall we're discussing environmental security and how that relates to resources and what's going on now and the four Mm. d's as we talked about so why don't you jump on in yeah, it's it's a it's been a very difficult and challenging time for the Western Cape province specifically in South Africa, where I used to be based, uh, and the the capital of the province, um, Cape Town, which has traditionally been a Mediterranean type climate, so rainfall in the winter and dry in the summer, and there's been some persistent drought for quite some time now, and. A noticeable shift. Uh, everybody um, is saying it and believing it, uh, a shift in the rainfall patterns. So you take the mix of a rapidly growing urban population. So I'm, I'm really talking about uh, a city environment, urban environment with all the advanced first world infrastructure that goes with it. Um, in terms of water articulation services and all of that stuff. But it hasn't been enough. And what's happened is is that it's came in quite late in the game as usual. I think uh, we've learned lessons with humanity. We, we uh, often need to be prodded really badly to, to actually make changes that are meaningful, particularly when it comes to things like water use and daily water use, you know, showering, let the shower run for 15 minutes uh, or, um, you know, have your dishwashing machine running on the most intense possible mode that it can and washing cars and gardens and all sorts of lifestyle-oriented questions. And this is this is really at the heart of this, is that um, Cape Town is a first-world environment. It's very cosmopolitan, yet it does have uh, what one would call the, the urban poor edge uh, that people don't like to talk about, but the legacy of apartheid, townships um, sprawling around the edge, also desperate for services. And of course, water, electricity and food are at the top of those services. And it's running out. And it's finally on that slippery slope to what is now being coined uh, day zero when the taps run dry. Well, what's interesting is, I'm just going to interject here, is we so often discuss on this program and in conservation, you know, the poverty levels of people who don't have these services and all the work between United Nations, Food Aid, World Bank, and all of this to help what we consider third world developing outward in the middle of sort of nowhere it's somewhere to them who don't have these services and we've done stopgap measures like dropping food or bringing in water and we think of it as a problem elsewhere for others but now we're talking about day zero in the first world of um, Africa Cape Town and when 
these people, us, start feeling this kind of pinch, you go to the tap and there's no water, and water rationing happens, then that distance that we talked about a minute between comfort and discomfort hits us. And all of a sudden, we wake up. So it, it, let's talk about that distance, that discomfort distance between us and them. Uh, absolutely. And it's uh, arrived. I was in Cape Town two weeks ago, actually doing my final move to move to the Kruger and close up my apartment and sell up and everything. And I hadn't been in Cape Town for quite some time. And the change in people's attitudes, their stress levels, their level of anxiety was heightened. And it was fascinating as a conservationist and an educator um, to step back in a sense within myself, uh, watching people around me and friends talking. And for the first time, um, my, I don't call them, I don't like to say mainstream friends, but my non-conservation friends who work in finance, whatever, they, they were spending the bulk of the conversation talking about how they're going to cope um, with the water issue. Now, rationing um, is has been put into effect in the last uh, few months. And now what it's down to is a maximum of 45 liters per person per day in a household. Um, wow. So you can work out the gallon to liter ratio. It's quite serious. And that's everything. That's for your um, toilet um, your showering, your hygiene, your cooking, um, and everything. So that's pretty much it. And they've finally, I mean, there was a lot of pressure from many of us on the build-up to, uh, to the city to say, look, only the city can provide the right kind of tools to measure um, and I'm, I suppose in America, people would call me a hawk. I'm quite hawkish. I believe there needs to be enforcement. If there's a law, it must be enforced. We can't go softly, softly the whole time. Uh, and we're at that point where people need to be fined and uh, uh, their non-compliance needs to be addressed. And why I take that line is um, water, it's, it's not like getting a, a speeding ticket from a traffic police officer. Even then, if you're getting it, you probably got it because you could endanger somebody's life because you're driving so fast. But when you are taking punitive measures around uh, excessive water use, it's because you're trying to stop people from taking unnecessary amounts of waters from other people and obviously uh, um, breaking down what little reserve is left. So it's very serious. Yeah, and this, you, um, what you it, just said is... very serious. And what you just said is really what the first world has been doing all along. You know, we bemoan, oh, those poor people and build water wells. And, you know, we've talked about what that does to a... Um, um, migratory or pastoral population, it settles them. But now, when we're running out of water and we're at day zero, and it comes down to us um, having to um, make this choice and law enforcement, this is where government works. And it leads to my question, when are we, the first world, developed world, United States, Europe, um, you name it, going to voluntarily comply and enforce ourselves versus having it enforced upon us? Yes, no, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a thing, um, a, a very wicked issue that... Um, is blind it doesn't care who it hits and it's a fast growing um, and is likely um, to hit the developed world uh, on our northern hemisphere cousins uh, such as yourself in a way that they're not used to you know Absolutely. The, the, the age of plenty is um coming to an end and we've gone through a phase since the 2002 
2008 uh, crash, financial crash into financial austerity, but we're also heading into the realm of environmental austerity. And it's those two challenges to the consumer world that should provide a very big warning now to say, hey, you overspent and you also invested in things that weren't real and undermined basic financial systems of the world and consumerism took a hit then. Now we kind of picked up again, has kind of recovered a bit and now suddenly we're seeing environmental austerity arriving and it's going to be just as discomfortable. The difference with this is you can die. Uh, you could lose your home and get into trouble with your credit rating with the bank. But this this version is far worse, far more uh, impactful in terms of societies. Well, and, it's, it's, it's a very uh, real-world effect versus this sort of superficial um, economy we've built that runs separately of resources this continued let's call it millennial development goals talking about growth growth that by 2020 we'll be here by 2050 we'll be here we've already Mm -hmm. overshot that growth model and we're hitting day Mm -hmm. zero um, all over the place so let's let's back up a minute and um, talk about the four D's, deforestation, desertification, destabilization, and discomfort. And this leads to the environmental conflicts, resource wars, emigration, migration, national security, and, um, you know, people getting angry, riots in the streets where you live, and the stress you talked about. Let's, let's, let's dig into this a little bit more and... Um, talk about how these are connected and why it's so important we jump the gun now to get on this versus waiting until day zero and that day zero looks different depending on where you are uh, absolutely and I, mean, I I think the all of those D's um, uh, particularly the destabilization that follows from um, overutilization, uh, which is what it gets down to, or degradation. So de- deforestation, definitely, we know now it's scientifically proven it affects rainfall. We see it in Brazil, uh, and then we see what happens to the, the hack and slash culture that they do for stock farming and how it's created this awful um, cycle, self-fulfilling prophecy that the guys can only graze their cattle in these cleared areas um, for a little while. Uh, the rain lasts for a season because of the water cycle and washes what little nutrients there are away. And then the guys have got to move again. So these communities have to move again. So and in, a, in a pro, yeah, and I know I could get Uh, take a lot of heat for this kind of view but it's an inappropriate um, agricultural activity in that particular biome in that particular forest biome the soils are not rich all the richness of the brazilian rainforests and uh, and ecuador and those other regions are actually locked into the plants Um, it's not in the soil so as soon as you chop down you've made your sale on a nice Brazilian uh, hardwood and you clear an entire area you change the water and you change the the soil fertility so that's a great example of of, uh, degradation and deforestation and then ultimately desertification follows um, because what topsoil is 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 washed away and if it's not dealt with, um, you now actually have a patch for all intensive purposes. You have patches of desert right next to this incredible, diverse, pulsing, life-filled forest. Yeah, um, and I think... And that... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 sorry. I, you, well, you what I was going to say is I think the majority of thinking people, certainly conservationists, get this. And that it's happening elsewhere, that, you know, in the Amazon, in Brazil, in Peru, that, you know, we're wrapping our minds around it. And we've done so much um, news and media about it happening elsewhere. 
that we sort of understand mm-hmm. it, but we haven't connected the dots of when it happens in our home. And I think that's yes. what we're, we're addressing today, the environmental countdown to day zero, and that day zero has happened in Cape Town. And yes. what's it going to take to get the first world folks to wrap their minds around that if it happens in Cape Town, it doesn't just happen in the backwoods someplace, and it's not just happening mm. in, you know, the northern deserts of Kenya or Sudan mm. or Mali, that the mm. water is disappearing and it, the, what it's going to do, national security, resource wars, all these things, mm. what are we going to do to click this in? I think, as usual, we do need a shocking example um, to wake people up. Um, And uh, Cape Town is a big example, I think, for the world, um, because it is uh, the last check. I think it's it's in the top 10 cities in the world in terms of governance, um, uh, amenities, beauty, you know, uh, culture, etc. So there's a lot of criteria. Yeah, tourism, so it's right hotels, there. travel, hotels, you know, a whole lot. The bar, the the same, the, the beverage um, companies. Coca-Cola yeah. has a big bottling plant. You know, when these things start hitting and tipping um, like dominoes, it's too late. So when mm, it's no. too late, how do we? play catch up yeah I think the the thing is we we fund them well in South Africa anyway fundamentally the the right to life um, is your 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 last legal um, kind of uh, a stopping point and so what we've seen uh, with the countdown to day zero and the discomfort and it was quite interesting I took a drive past um, a, a historical well point where a spring comes out off of Table Mountain uh, near an old funny talking about bottling and all that an old brewery a South African breweries brewery building and a fresh water has always come out and they'd always made it available for anybody who would want to come and uh, collect some water. Um, and um, uh, that now has two kilometer queue of people with drums trying to, and now also security um, letting people fill up two drums maximum, they have to move on. And there's already been outbreaks, scuffles and arrests because um, the lines, the queues are, and it's, for me, there's a positive. It's a great leveler. It doesn't matter how rich you are or what car you park around the corner to get uh, your empty water drums to come and fill up. And there's and that a disconnect was, right there. You're driving your Mercedes van up to park to wait two kilometers in a queue to get two drums of water. That's That right there is the great leveler. Unfortunately, we need to uh, take jump to a break right now but folks stick with us i hope you're on the edge of your seats because this is happening now it's time to wake up so stick with us and we'll be right back wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Ashwell Glasson. And we're talking about day zero, when the resources finally run out and we are faced with environmental security issues. So, Ashwell, we left off with scuffles in the street at the water queue in Cape Town. And, you know, perhaps driving the Mercedes up there to stand in line with everybody else to get their limited ration of water. So... This leads to a point that maybe a lot of people don't quite get. Water is a non-renewable resource. We can't really make it. Earth makes it and on a planetary-wide scale, but we're using it f- through 7 billion people faster than we can make it, while we're also removing the Earth's surface that makes water. So let's... Let's focus this again in South Africa and some of your um, historical uh, tidbits that you always fill us in with of how this ends up becoming a local issue to a national security issue. Absolutely. Uh, um, And, you know, picking up on that point, the water cycle in the world is dependent on functioning ecosystems and uh, different stages in those ecosystems. And we have this particularly nasty habit, uh, I'm not trying to be uh, very pessimistic, but we tend to disrupt those mechanisms that sustains the kind of uh, water supply or volume that we need and that's being pretty selfish forget the rest of um, our other species that live with us and alongside us Um, so that's also a a key thing in this whole discussion is that um, this Day zero has also been an issue of how we've disrupted um, water supply and water cycles that bring water um, climatically and even through um, plants. We know that as well um, through vegetation cover um, and that kind of thing. And in South Africa, um, we're a particularly dry country and the Western Cape. Um, very much a very dry country. So we've definitely denuded a lot of productive areas that would have a role in producing um, uh, the kind of water transpiration that would help with rainfall. So further up the coast from uh, Cape Town is the world-known garden route, renowned garden route that uh, used to be one massive um, montane forest um, with massive yellowwood trees, or a sort of our version of the Californian redwoods, but not as big was tall, but very much part of the water cycle. And um, we know forests and precipitation are tied to each other. And so you disrupt there, and I think uh, uh, stepping out of my box a bit, I think the Californians have also learned with the amount of fires that are following, because fire also follows. Uh, unfortunately, fire doesn't start with a D, but it's just as dire as the rest. So we've because got. Because then what follows um, the fires are the floods. Yes. 
So when the erratic nature, which is what's happening with climate change uh, in a region that's already now, like Cape Town, is already under pressure because a lot of its primary um, ecosystems that help produce fresh water um, are so reduced and also uh, the weather patterns, so the now more macro uh, climate climatological um, patterns have shifted somewhat. So we're seeing intensity on either, uh, uh, so intensity, then scarcity, and then also crazy variation um, as well, where it will rain intensely uh, 10 kilometers away, and although the cloud covers all there, there won't be rain for months uh, in another area 10 k's away from that rain. So it's no longer consistent as well. And that's what's also hit um, the entire thing. And historically, uh, the Western Cape has been dry, but Cape Town has been on the what would be called the right side of the, the rain um, front. And so there... The, yeah, I mean, it's the, the worst drought in recorded history um, in Cape Town is taking place. And the, the, the astounding nature of it, yeah, sorry. Well, I was going to say in, in what we were talking about of the different versions of Day Zero, in 2009, in the Northern District of Kenya, they faced the worst drought in recorded history. And every year since then, it's been worse. And 10 years ago, we worked on a disaster management plan. So we all knew mm. what to do, but it doesn't get implemented. We seem to keep putting our heads in the sand when we're at the top of this triangle of decision makers. You know, we put it into place and put enforcement into place on others, but we're often not willing to make these, I'm going to call them sacrifices, in the first world. Mm, definitely. And considering that the first world is still, by and large, the net importer of raw commodities for processing from uh, us, the third world, that economic mechanism, that economic link, with that continuing on its current trajectory uh, to change that kind of thinking takes quite a bit because it basically means you've got to let the third world also grow up uh, and move through the system. And uh, getting back to Cape Town and the local situation day zero, um, it's become quite clear that standard ways of producing local uh, government uh, budgets are no longer effective because um, it, it's same old, same old thinking. Uh, it's about now making provisions for disasters. And we've seen it, funny enough, the, the universities all over South Africa are opening up new uh, departments that are offering postgraduate qualifications in disaster and emergency management, these transdisciplinary uh, qualifications, because uh, they want uh, practitioners out there that can pull these threads together to advise ambulance and fire services to come up with master plans. But like you mentioned just now, that's very situational. What are we doing um, in the uh, short to midterm because that's what you need when things go wrong. That's a Hurricane Katrina and FEMA in America trying to get itself sorted, which that was a case in point of how not to do it, if I remember correctly, right. um, with the issues of how FEMA handled uh, that and to mobilize the resources. And, of course, um, last year's bad knives in the fires, as well. And then all the, uh, in the South hurricanes, Africa. Puerto Rico keeps getting hit over and over and over and yeah. over again. And it doesn't even, when we talk about these or hear about it in the news, they're not really connecting to the dot, the dots of the environmental degradation. And let's take Katrina as an example of building that shipping. Uh, it's called Mr. Go, that shipping alleyway that cut through the mangrove forest, which were the buffer zones to hold back the waters. When we interrupt yeah. these earth systems to create 
shortcuts for us in this economic model that sits on top and likes to think it functions without strings attached to the environmental goings-on, we suddenly are creating disasters. It goes back to Thomas Friedman, hot, flat, and crowded. We've been here Mm. before, and Mm. now we're really getting it right in our own backside, so to speak. And um, so we suddenly have to implement emergency disaster plans, which hopefully would lead to a a longer term. I was really glad you brought up, you know, the colleges bringing in new uh, groups of study, methods of study to deal with the future, because evidently what we've been preparing young people for are for jobs that are not going to be functional or not appropriate by the time they get out of school. The world has shifted. So um, this brings us to a really good point where we can talk about the Southern African Wildlife College and its two-year program and the young, the youth and the students and the adults of what the college teaches and how it's going to deal with this resilience of dealing with these issues now versus sometime in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's part of what our college DNA, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Is it it's our golden thread. Um, when we've looked at the, and with very honest, pragmatic eyes, not too much of an academic theoretical view, but actually looked at the practical realities, uh, what we like to call our golden thread is that um, teaching and educating for skills is one thing, but it is the future is really about Deepening students' ability to problem solve generically, to learn fast um, and learn context or situations quickly. Um, and so, to be able to take that, let's call it capability to address problems uh, in a rapid and innovative way. So innovation comes in, and then obviously with the primary view, because it's conservation, is to see, okay, how are the natural tensions that exist between biodiversity uh, conservation, local communities, and then the abiotic factors that affect us, the uh, things like water, um, rainfall, wind, um, sun, solar radiation, all of that, and all other things. So one of the projects we're working on is uh, a water-based one uh, with the Limpopo River Basin. And it's a, it's a large-scale project uh, because it affects the entire Limpopo province and the Kruger, um, large number of towns, millions of people, and it also um, has significant impact on Mozambique because that's where the Limpopo River uh, eventually moves. So that whole program and what we're trying to um, educate and inspire um, program leaders it's not just uh, for young students we're actually working with um, five other universities so the Edward Mondlane University in uh, Maputo in Mozambique and the Pedagogical University in Mozambique plus ourselves as the Southern African Wildlife College the University of Mpumalanga, University of Venda, and University of Limpopo. And we've kind of come up with a plan, um, and it's not about churning out kids with degrees. It's about actually looking at programs and saying we need to target certain um, managers, leaders, and communities and everything to start addressing the resilience requirements because you know we've had the same like the Americas had we've uh, recent we've had huge floods on one end we then we've had extreme droughts on the other end and it's all happening at fast and faster iterations so you know from 2002 till now there have been huge number of floods that affected the region and huge number of droughts that have affected the region and then 
uh, unusual rainfall kind of in the middle but very late or very early so weather, weather pattern disrupt, uh, disruption and then of course uh, what I like to call the growing threat from the margins um, that comes with that um, and explain that, that the is, margins so the margins are, are the communities that might not be poverty stricken but they could be close but they've got some services they've experienced a certain level of comfort um, and now that is being taken away and it becomes a hotbed for the national security issues and things like um, illegal um, wildlife trade poaching rhino poaching elephant poaching uh, um, as as you've seen the statistics came out last week thursday and uh, poaching on rhinos down by about 28 or 38 animals i think but we spiked in 2017 we had uh, 66 rhino poached in the kruger national park for ivory and one in kwazulu natal 16 and, rhino or 16 uh, elephant for ivory? A six, a 66 elephant okay, for elephant. ivory. Okay, elephant, all right. So, yeah, so what, we're, what we're saying here is it's, it's getting extreme. Once again, I refer to Thomas Friedman, hot, flat, and crowded, that he called it global weirding. It's unpredictable. With the climate shift yes. that we're seeing, how we can deny that it's happening, whether you want to believe it or not, it is happening, and we are reaching day zero. We have been for a decade, but now it's really coming in our face. And um, how yes, this no, leads absolutely. to these security issues and resource wars, and that it's not going to get better until we start acting right now. Mm. No, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I can, it sounds pessimistic, I can only see uh, conflict coming out of environmental security issues that, and that it's going to increase in frequency and intensity. And it's often in these um, uh, moments that uh, the disenfranchised or the wealth poverty divide, the people stuck in the margins start turning to those that um, uh, they might not be in a position to guarantee, but they provide a focus or a guarantee for behavior and for support. And that's where the likes of ISIS uh, in the Middle East have evolved. Um, they, they came in when people were distraught uh, and gave them a focus. We're not talking about uh, ISIS in the terms of being a, another Al-Qaeda or something like that. They mobilize people to fight conventionally a, because people are getting food. B, yes, it could be cultural and my personal religion. So that's another thing. And we're seeing similar um, results that environmental drivers are starting to push people towards joining extremist groups, uh, terrorist groups or um, uh, non-governmental forces. And that leads to civil war and uh, more strife and potential conflict in Ethiopia and Somalia, uh, the Puntland um, and that area has had an extreme amount of it. And there we could see from the piracy, um, right. uh, um, uh, piracy, uh, sponsor, piracy being sponsored by terrorists because they needed some cash flow to sustain their mainstream activity, which was to promote their specific ideology right. uh, so, and things uh, like that. We need to step away for a break. Once again, we're leaving uh, you, my listeners, on a cliffhanger because we're now going to start to connect the dots as Ashwell has just begun to do of what we can look forward to if we don't decide to get off our butts and take some action. So we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to Our Wild World. My guest, Ashwell Glasson, and we're talking about environmental security and that we are under the foot of it now, reaching tipping points that we've talked about for decades. And in the last section, Ashwell, you touched on um, the link between environmental security and resource wars and lack of resources and when it starts affecting the marginalized communities of the urban landscape, those that are let's call it like lower middle class that had a level of comfort and services and now they don't and how that leads up to the ladder to you know people in their mercedes queuing up for water at um, water points in cape town and the link between how it turns people in these marginalized communities who have been affected for quite some time into extreme measures um, and linking up with those people, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda, who will supply for their immediate needs and comfort and how this connects to illegal international wildlife crime. Uh, Absolutely. And I I think there's been so much work done by... um, uh, international criminal court and global uh, transnational um, uh, justice and the Wildlife Justice Commission and Wild Leaks and EIA and Wild Aid. Um, I, I think uh, not all organizations that are terror organizations are involved in wildlife, illegal wildlife trade. But certainly in Africa, there's no doubt that there is a link um, of how they are looking for cash and also looking for human resources. So we do know examples of um, this include Lord Resistance Army uh, in Uganda and how they recruit child soldiers via kidnapping because they need um, uh, sounds terrible fresh meat for the grinder um, as well and some people willingly sell surplus children to extremist movements as future uh, foot soldiers so they can get the bare minimum and a lot of these organizations are providing uh alternative forms of comfort guarantees of of food uh, relative safety um, water and that kind of thing and it's a quite a, a an attractive proposition when the state cannot or is not in a position to do so. So if we look at the recent, um, what it took nine months, I might be mistaken in saying that, but it took the coalition forces in Iraq nine months to take back the city of Ramadi from ISIS. Um, and it was a very, I think, uh, 
uh, I wouldn't want to say an interesting experience, but there were people in there that had no food, had no water, hadn't been supplied or cared for by the Iraqi government, the elected democratic government, and it became a fertile recruiting ground and when we make the connections that becomes obviously national security issues but when we start making these connections um, uh, like in in South Africa with Cape Town with uh, a huge wealth poverty divide um, what does one do because um, natural movements resistance movements or activist movements will just coalesce because of the situation and the lack of of the resource and then suddenly there will be movements and as we know in history historical facts whenever there's been problems with things like water and other basic human rights it tends to lead to violence well, it's, it sounds like a sci-fi movie post-Holocaust and the, you know, s- dramatic series that are being made on TV, you know, small rebel groups gaining members to fight for their cause, to, um, re- to find resources and take control of them, you know, Thunderdome, Mad Max, um, Game mm. of Thrones, Black Swan, mm. all these series that we're showing now is exactly this. And what we're really doing is making things harder for ourselves to solve by not taking action when the examples over the past decades that show us what happens start scaling up to the urban Mm. communities and we keep waiting until we've reached day zero to take action we're we're in our own sci-fi movie absolutely and day zero has arrived uh, across the world there are many places where day zero has arrived in Cape Town day zero is is rapidly approaching uh, they funny enough today have just pushed it out a bit because they're anticipating some um, good uh, rains hopefully coming uh, not that it would make a huge immediate difference because uh, they need three or four years of normal winter rainfall to to get back to a fairly even balance but what we are seeing are the beginnings of the thrashing and the throws of the rise of the threat from the margins for, because of um, this instability and then also the inherent um, hostility towards wealth and those that f- overly flaunt wealth. Right. I think that is going to be a problem. You know, the more and more people who have bigger and bigger houses with more and more motor cars, um, I think there's definitely going to be a lot of social activism around just how much is enough, how much is enough. And the war of the 99% and, you know, the, the coalescing of the marginalized um, people that we've been talking about against the 1% who are rather hoarding it all, not really contributing to the economic um, biosystem, so to speak. They're putting the money away and just keeping it versus contributing. Um, They just keep taking this big corporate mindset. Um, Trump is a great example and what's happening in the U.S. of the um, dismantling of our um, environmental protections and his mindset that oh we'll 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 work on the environment a little bit like we live in a bubble and the mm. um, the ignorance or the denying that this is all deeply interconnected from the bottom up and yes. and it's starting <laughs> to really show when the bottom up starts responding as we've just talked about what does the top down end up doing well i think it's this has been a magic question uh, the question and i was reading an article the other day that uh, it, from a political science or public management perspective that it's actually going back to the state a bigger state 
um, a more capable state. So wherever you are, if you have a functioning government, national government at least, um, it's getting back to, and they actually, funny enough, we, you and I chat about conservation 2.0. They're now talking about a state 2.0 and not the usual thing, oh, you know, draconian laws of about, you know, it's no longer about privacy rights and yeah, a lot of the usual stuff that concerns um, the developed world, uh, you know, between America, the UK, France and Germany, there's a lot of fighting over, you know, WikiLeaks and all of those kind of things. The new State Point uh, 2.0 is about innovation and solving these problems um, around the basic human rights, what food we eat, water, shelter, um, right to um, basic education is almost going back to the original concepts of why states formed uh, is because they were given the right by the citizens to provide those services in a consistent manner. And I think we, a lot of states and countries have forgotten that they've become a, uh, and apologies for you and uh, and I'll say for South Africa we've become stuck in personality politics and it's oh, we talk about Trump and we talk about Zoom eh? it's interesting you should say that because that's what I was thinking the thoughts that were going through my mind as you were speaking earlier that we've gone so far ahead into this disconnect of the corporate level the buck never stops it just keeps getting passed that it has to eventually come back to the community and down to the individual and sort of mm. rebuild with pride the abil- and and um integrity the ability to care for ourselves and each other versus waiting for some ethereal them to do it for us Exactly. And that to now bring the positive opportunity out of this great challenge that lies ahead, we humans work best when we are in social groups. So you hit it spot on. It's about active citizenship. Um, educating oneself on the topic, even you don't have to be a genius and have to do a doctorate in it, we're not talking about that, but educating yourself on the topic, finding like-minded people, um, making sure you make it local, it's in your backyard, because this thing of NIMBY, not in my backyard, sorry chaps, sorry ladies and gents, NIMBY no longer exists. It's in your backyard now, and you have to face it. So face it positively, work, create the networks, use social media, um, lobby your senators, or like in South Africa, members of parliament, um, if get the state on side if you can get the state on side um, it's much harder for the consumer drivers the big corporates um, to beat um, both and it sounds terrible what my personal view is the consumer led world is still primarily driven by Uh, the consumer suppliers what they've become very good at through the lobbying systems in Washington and in Berlin and London and Pretoria and Cape Town and uh, Tokyo is playing the community or citizens off the state representatives and And that's what they've become very good at these interest groups yeah and these mega mergers you know taking taking the ability of the consumer to really make some choices to really look at what they're buying you know what from reading ingredient labels to understanding what contains palm oil and what palm oil plantations are doing versus bringing it back to the local so there's a a saying think local act global so when we bring it back to our local community and actually start working with each other, then we have the ability to, as you were saying, to build um, influence and put pressure on these larger systems. Because if comes down to if we don't buy it, they can't sell it. But when we decide to just say, oh, never mind, it's easy, I'll go get it anyway just this once, when you have Mm. five, seven billion people doing that, 
then you're not making a change. You're actually helping this system function. So it's it's yeah. going to require, I'll use the word sacrifice, but the sacrifice is in our best interest. And when you think of it in terms of better health, better community, better planet, survival, mm. then it's not no, really a sacrifice the, anymore. Yeah, the, the, it, uh, there are so many benefits from it, including things like uh, more resistant and robust ecosystems, um, the return of bioagriculture, you know, growing um, human foods in conjunction with uh, biodiversity ecosystems and um, other things as well, addressing uh, deeply rooted criminal or sociological um, problems that have persisted in uh, the first peoples um, of the world who, uh, you know, the forcible disconnection from their land and their spiritual um, well-being and all of those kind of things. But I think positively there's a lot that can be done and some of those actions are actually pretty simple and using the example getting back to Cape Town um, it's about if you're going to put a law in enforce the law like Cape Town is doing with uh, water offenders encourage behavior change um, and do it in a way that's about educating because that's uh, the hard bit and you know and everybody's defense um, if they don't get it uh, earlier on, you've got to continuously remind the bulk of the people, listen, please stick to that 45 um, litre limit. It, uh, this is why. If you don't, there's the knock-on effect. And um, for those, we always know there's a small group of uh, those that won't because they've got the money to pay the fine so they will um, continue doing what they need to do but then they must be fined and I, I believe in a proportional way you know if if they they are ultra wealthy and they are um, using thousands of liters monthly <laughs> they must pay a proportional well, it um, sort of goes back uh, to that sci-fi thriller that we're living in. There's always the evil lord, and then, you know, the rebels that want to fight them. Yes. And so what what we're also saying is this doesn't mean we have to go back to living in caves prior to pre-industrial revolution. We can use some of the systems that we've created and the technology we have to further benefit us to create and reimagine, and our common sense, of course, and data that we know historically, to recreate civil society. Because where we're at right now isn't working. And as Monbiot had written, the system must go. Mm. It's no longer no. working for us. This laissez-faire, free, cap free market capitalism, models of growth is destroying us. No, I totally agree with uh, George and his view. I completely agree with it. And it is time for a, a massive um, system change. Uh, it really is. I think, as we know, the, the, the drivers are already here. The, the tap's running dry. The day zeros are pushing very hard. And we know that sometimes those moments can bring the best and worst out in humanity. And I'm hoping for, certainly hoping for the best uh, well, in terms of Cape that's Town. Why that, we're, uh, that's why we're optimists. And hopefully folks out there get that point from our discussion today that it's worth being an optimist rather than being um, the pessimist and hoarding. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time today, Ashville. You and I get on a topic and we could go forever. So it's wonderful that you're a continuing guest and we can talk and hash out some of these things and help folks understand some of the bigger picture thinking and um, help them make decisions of what they can do today and that what we as an individual do, do does do does make a difference. It's come down to that. It's come back to that, that every individual counts. So, Ash, um, thanks so much for your time. Another fascinating discussion. 
absolute pleasure yeah and I, the more value we can give to the listeners the, the better and maybe even next time a little bit more practical tips on on looking at some day zero issues and what one can do at home and maybe kind of drumming up some good thinking around that and everything and we'll still certainly keep up our chats about uh, the illegal wildlife trade and what's also happening there but this is a wonderful chat absolutely this is a wonderful chat it, it was and what we're trying to get folks to understand is it's all connected you know on some at one point or another along the web it's all connected. Everything affects everything. So that's it for today. Thanks, Ash. And you're listening to Our Wild World. And meanwhile, step out into your wild world and think about what you can do today. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thank you.